The Indo-US nuclear deal. Most of us know it for the uncertainty it caused for the government of the day. But what was going on behind the scenes? How did the negotiations succeed? And most importantly, what do we got to do with it? I am Vishesh Kashyap and with me is Shivam Jha. Welcome to yet another episode of the TTU Times podcast. Professor Ravi Bhushan Grover is a nuclear scientist and a mechanical engineer from the DCE batch in 1970. He is the founding vice chancellor of the Homi Bhabha National Institute, a member of the Atomic Energy Commission, and a fellow of the Indian National Academy of Engineering and World Academy of Art and Science. Professor Grover served as the principal advisor to the Strategic Planning Group in the Department of Atomic Energy, and with Anil Kakodkar led the Indian side during the negotiations for the nuclear deal. In 2014, Professor Grover was awarded the Padma Shri by the Government of India. Welcome sir to the DTU Times podcast. It is really a pleasure to have you here. Good evening sir. Uh how are you doing today? And once again it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Good evening. It's a very pleasant experience to speak to students who are now in I what should I say my college hmm. and they're studying in the same branch which I studied. but of course campus is different otherwise i would have said those who are moving in the same corridors since the time yeah so just to get started off with our conversation i would just like to understand what was your college experience like uh, in the late 1960s when you were at uh, delhi college of engineering in the kashmir gate campus uh, talk me through how your experience was like then and how different do you think was the engineering curriculum and the engineering life during those days as compared to what we have right now here well i joined uh, delhi college of engineering kashmiri gate campus in 1965 so 1965 to 1970 these were the five years which i uh, spent on that campus uh, in terms of teaching undergraduate students it was a very good institution and continues to be so uh, we had uh, many good teachers whenever i look back i can recollect the names and faces of uh, those teachers even now and uh, they took uh, kind of interest which uh, they had in teaching and ensuring that we understood everything it was really uh, fantastic and some of them have left a lasting impression when i look back i thank them for making us and all my classmates what we are today uh, we had very good workshops very good laboratories and uh, i think uh, this this year in january all batchmates we got together we went to first came to your present campus where you are these days and then uh, I went for a few hours to Kashmiri Gate campus and had a look at the workshops and of course the only rooms were there now inside uh, they have rearranged uh, uh, several uh, equipment uh, there there was a difference between engineering as taught during those days as taught now because of several uh, reasons first of course is uh, knowledge keeps expanding and this has been studied by many educationists uh, and they have coined a term half life of knowledge the result of that is that syllabus these days of various branches of engineering is evolving very fast uh, mm-hmm. because of continuous uh, increase in knowledge uh, which is uh, happening because of research for fields which are new fields like computer science and engineering they are developing so fast and that that they say half life of knowledge is 2 and 1/2 years mm. that means if you graduate from a four year course by the time you graduate a good part of your knowledge is already obsolete for a classical discipline like uh, mechanical engineering half life i think uh, this is a paper i read maybe 10 15 years back is seven and a half years okay so much more uh, a stable uh, profession so what you are studying now what we studied is lot has changed for purpose of drawing we used to carry drawing boards and uh, these care 
there was a big drawing hall where drawing boards and tea skates were kept and them twice uh, a week was uh, this class in first year second year i think in third year also uh, nowadays you work on computers and software that is something which was unheard of at that time now you use uh, calculators uh, and we were using slide rules i still have kept slide rules somewhere it may be uh, i hope you have heard of slide rule at least yeah that was if you are carrying a slide slide rule that was a sign of the fact that you are engineer <laughs> so i think uh, it has changed we had a five years uh, program now it is a four year uh, mm-hmm. program that change has also happened and i but i was a day scholar okay. so i didn't experience the hostel life i used to travel to kashmiri gate every day in the morning and then go back uh, so that part of hostel life i really missed uh, while studying in this college but there was something which uh, happened that uh, year after year i had uh, i used to score well good position uh, overall in the merit i was i think second all the five years second position and uh, normally uh, in those days uh, distinction was uh, for those who scored above 80% normally it could be only one person who would score one above 80% mm-hmm. in 1970 when my batch graduated we are two persons who scored above 80% only two persons with uh, distinction so this mm-hmm. gives you a good boost later on when you Uh, score well mm. it's very nice to hear that and also uh, the next thing that i would like to ask you is that how would you say because you come from a family of mechanical engineers from dc so dc obviously would have a significantly important part in your entire life how would you say dc and mechanical engineering there have been instrumental in your in shaping your interest towards the field of nuclear and atomic energy and uh, what all contribution did it have in your decisions to pursue a professional career as well as masters and phd in that domain uh, well let me be uh, frank with you here the way when we graduated in 1970 our batch graduated it was a very difficult period for the country mm-hmm. we had uh, war with china in 62 with pakistan in 1965 so economy was not in good shape and industry was really not uh, flourishing and so jobs for engineers were hard to come by particularly the batches which graduated from 65 onwards 65 to 73 74 that period was uh, very difficult uh, essentially i loved academics and wanted to continue in academic field i come from as i said my brother is also mechanical engineer my father was school principal of a higher secondary school so i had inherited love for academics from my father and that was something which prevailed in the family so i applied to join amtech in iit as well as for various jobs the idea was to move on in a direction where you get a job because the situation was very bad So I appeared for interview in BARC, and there something very interesting happened. Uh, I spoke to people who were had joined one year back. In BARC, when you join, you have to complete one year of training. That training is purely academic training. Uh, the it is very structured training. and do it is called training now here let me digress a little when we say education it can be formal education non formal education or informal education uh, these happen because education can be structured or unstructured accredited or not accredited to any particular university mm-hmm. when education is structured and accredited you get a degree this is called formal education that is what currently you are going through when it is unstructured and not accredited you do not get a degree but you do get education that you learn from your interaction with uh, friends you learn from television you learn in every way when you interact with somebody or you read a book or you move on 
But when there's education which is structured but not accredited, then it is known as non-formal education. Mm. So in training school, we had non-formal education. It was structured, but degree was not. Mm-hmm. So when I realize everything, at least I will be in, in academics, move on to R&D, and my love was academics. I said, okay, Vanka, I should take up this job if selected. This is what uh, I decided uh, after the interview. Well, yes, it was. I was selected. So this was one of the, I think, second or third, second interview I had given. So I came and joined here. And one year training which we did was a coursework was equivalent to what one does in the MTech program. And afterward, you join and uh, in MTech you do projects. Here also, I worked on various projects. It become, became equivalent to that. So my love for academic was uh, satisfied. Mm-hmm. Then second question which you had, or part of the question was, what interested me uh, in nuclear engineering? Nuclear engineering is a multidisciplinary field. Making a nuclear plant, you need uh, expertise in mechanical, electrical, civil, and also in physics, chemistry, biology, etc everything. So I wanted to be in academics and here it was a field where I could use my knowledge in mechanical engineering, enhance my knowledge in mechanical engineering. So in every way it was something which uh, was a, I considered it a win-win situation. I joined training school and we studied there and there was very interesting uh, situation emerged in that particular year. Several of classmates from Delhi College of Engineering joined training school, they were selected. That was a status of uh, Delhi College of Engineering uh, at that time. Uh, I, I think uh, we were some 12 people from the same batch who came here. So we used to have lectures for uh, lectures or practicals for five days and exam on Saturdays. There was no rest time, one exam and after another exam, ongoing exam. But it was a a fun period with so many, uh, I was in the hostel for the first time and with so many classmates from Delhi College of Engineering and new class uh, friends you made. And then during this training school, I was able to build up on my interest uh, in a particular subject. if I go back to days in Delhi College of Engineering, uh, there was uh, one professor, Professor Y.V.S. Sastri, who was teaching us power plant dynamics. He was very good, the way he explained uh, various uh, concepts. So it was related in a way to big transfer and fluid flow, and I mm-hmm. could further develop my interest in subjects, and there was another teacher which we had in training school. Incidentally, he was also a Sastri, but Esther Sastri taught very well. So I said, fine, this is a subject I can choose for my further research. And uh, then there was another, uh, again, very good coincidence. Delhi College of Engineering, I was second position. And in training school, I was overall topper. So I could... uh, get the placement which I wanted. So I joined Reactor Engineering Division in BARC. Mm. And my first mentor was one Mr. S.K. Mehta, who was from the first batch of training school. And he turned out to be a graduate of Delhi College of Engineering. Wow. At that time, it was Delhi Polytechnic. I think he must have graduated in uh, 54 or so, something like that. A very fine gentleman, mm-hmm. and uh, he was a very good mentor. He helped me. I got a good assignment, and uh, when I graduated in '71 from training school, and Indian Institute of Science started external registration program. That mm-hmm. means you could work in a laboratory anywhere in India. Register for a PhD with IIC Bangalore, commute between Bangalore and wherever you are. Finish your research and earn a PhD. And this program they started in 1972, first batch enrolled. 
second batch in 1974 i came to know and again here mr sk mehta was helpful in every way i enrolled in the 1974 batch and then used to travel from mumbai to bangalore and those days traveling by train in at time in unreserved compartment was a challenge but when you are 22 23 24 years all those challenges uh, you can manage so i started my work psd uh, work in 74 onwards at the same time i was uh, working uh, for a project in brc was essentially research reactor was being designed and i was working on thermal hydraulic analysis of uh, mm-hmm. the fuel and core of that uh, research reactor it was a very busy period particularly computers were not the way they are at the moment mm-hmm. getting computation time was a challenge computers were very slow well whatever was available at that time we worked uh, all of us were working in the same way and uh, now this involved uh, the doing psd involved spending one semester in uh, isc bangalore so i took one semester leave from brc spent mm-hmm. one semester there and uh, had a very good uh, guide in one professor krishna prasad who introduced me to the field of uh, computational uh, mechanics all these computational uh, methods which now you learn in uh, your i think undergraduate classes itself they were just emerging at that time uh, the very first book from uh, spalding and patankar had uh, was published in 67 second edition in 1970 and that was the one uh, with which i started uh, working and that interaction with krishna prasad and the kind of push he gave me helped me to work on psd but krishna prasad when i was still working on psd he left in between he went on to university of idowan in the netherlands but of course then there was another guy the same professor vijay kedi with whom i have still very good relationship mm. and uh, so completed my psd worked uh, on uh, in the area of thermal hydraulics that means fluid flow heat transfer a dua reactor subsequently for a compact reactor here i like to uh, say something to all of you young students while studying in delhi college of engineering as undergraduate students uh, i used to feel and perhaps many others also were feeling why are they teaching us so many different subjects which are even chemistry we had a chapters on paints and varnishes and so other things mm-hmm. but later on when you enter a job whether it's in industry or research you realize that this division into various disciplines is man made every problem is the interaction of various uh, disciplines together and you have to have knowledge of all the disciplines then only you uh, will not know which particular discipline you will need to solve a problem problem solving uh, god doesn't create problem based on disciplines of mechanical electrical or civil the problems are there there will be combination of uh, so many disciplines coming together there Uh, one uh, particular incident which i can relate you to will make it very clear i was working on a particular project by that time i had a big group working with me some uh, i think uh, maybe 10 people in my group and we had completed the thermal hydraulic analysis for a given reactor when you do dynamic analysis you come to solve various transients you see how pressure temperature flow rate is varying but the control people were saying that uh, we haven't got any input from thermal hydraulics group mm-hmm. and i was saying we have completed everything so then i the person who was in charge of control very good friend of mine i we decided to let us sit together and both the groups started sitting together then we found to write control algorithms they want inputs in a certain fashion 
we are generated in a certain fashion we have to come closer together mm-hmm. and to come close together because it was a very large system it didn't happen overnight we started meeting on every wednesday and this meeting went on for one full year after one full year the control people could write control algorithms we could freeze the flow sheets for the complete reactor system and the job was over hmm. so whenever interdisciplinary work is involved you have to listen to the language of the other discipline you are used to speaking in a certain language other discipline expert is used to speak in a different language you have to come together and the way to proceed is to have a dialogue correct to have a dialogue understand what the other team is wanting and what is your output and this dialogue is a difficult dialogue difficult because different disciplines have different language language uh, in the not in the sense that english it's english but the terms used are different abbreviations used are different so you have to understand each other and then only you can proceed further so when you are working on a design of a complex first uh, of a kind technology all these uh, issues come up the teamwork and teamwork where people belonging to different disciplines work together that becomes very a couple of things here so you mentioned uh, professor shastri professor yvsr shastri uh, yes i had the great fortune of meeting professor yvsr shastri in one of our uh, alumni uh, meets i think 2019 and just the amount of respect that he gets even from current students and current faculty who were students college of engineering it is immense he's really been like a legend of our college mm-hmm. and, and secondly you mentioned computational fluid dynamics my research at the undergraduate level in the past couple of years three years has been all in cfd earlier in aerodynamics in in, in cardiovascular flow and i didn't know you you could use cfd in in, in nuclear engineering as well I'm rather surprised that it was being used in nuclear engineering all those years ago, a couple of decades ago, 30 years ago. So another thing that that I'm really fascinated by is that you were involved in in the setting up of a couple of nuclear reactors, and as as I understand, those were the days of of a lot more red tape, a lot more license raj uh, in India as 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 compared to now. So I'm pretty sure you must have faced not just a lot of regulatory challenges but also a lot of scientific challenges so if you could guide us through the challenges both on the administrative and regulatory side and on the scientific side that you faced in setting up those those problems yes uh, the working involved several challenges both scientific and engineering and it also involved regulatory oversight uh, so this uh, license permit raj which was prevalent at uh, that time in the country that really did not uh, affect us uh, but uh, engineering and scientific challenges were plenty because say let us uh, say dhruva research reactor its uh, fuel is a seven rod cluster so we have seven rods in a outer flow tube and the flow liquid the flowing through that moving upwards so you have to do analysis of cut uh, that temperature of the fuel clad doesn't uh, go above a certain limit so there are there are computer codes uh, which we were uh, some computer codes steady first steady state analysis which were developed uh, in uh, uh, other countries they were available to us for transient certain codes we had to develop certain several problems uh, we had to solve and uh, move on we could move on based on that so it, it was difficult but doable Ex- both uh, computational work and experimental verification with uh, whenever it was possible we were able to do that with regard to uh, regulatory issues in the country when well, yes we do have uh, atomic energy act we do have uh, atomic energy regulatory board 
they were not administrative hurdles. All this question which the regulator was asking, at that time uh, ARB was still not there when we were working on Dhruva. All their, uh, it was a in-house uh, a safety committee set up. All their questions were only scientific. The idea was to ensure that uh, the actor design as it moves uh, should be uh, all right and the reactor should work. There should not be any safety issue. And uh, obviously, uh, that kind of issue one would like to work. Scientific challenge with regard to competition was so much that a computer program, which now on a desktop will take maybe four or five minutes, used to take more than one hour at that time. And another difficulty was we used to work with punched cards. There used to be, you uh, do your coding on punched cards. There was a, a card reader to feed the, uh, the whole thing in the card reader. Sometime that would uh, malfunction and the card would uh, get to turn off. So you repunch it and then uh, do your uh, work. So the, it used to be really at times uh, frustrating, but yes, uh, once you get the results, then you are very happy. Uh, you have uh, got the results. Here there was a very interesting uh, incident. I'm reminded that uh, we had a computer uh, EESL6. It was computer from Russia in uh, EARC. And uh, normally people would give their job on a Friday. And uh, but on Sunday, the computer would be free. So there was a computer operator who became very friendly with me. Uh, he said, okay, you come on uh, uh, Sunday, I'll tell you as many jobs as possible. So I used to have to, uh, for my thesis, uh, PhD thesis, I had to take several runs, each run taking uh, uh, one hour. So after lunch on Sunday, I would go, whenever he was on duty, the one by one, he would uh, run my jobs and uh, in a maybe spend five, six hours there, could get six points for my curve and then come back. At times, I would, he would tell me, okay, I'm duty, on duty at in the night shift, go after dinner mm. and uh, run. So you had to do all these things to ensure that uh, you are able to complete your uh, uh, job and uh, get the runs. So sometimes there are good people you come across, they help. But uh, that was very interesting. One person helped. Uh, he said, rather than switching off the computer and sleeping, I'll work for you and do that. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, coming to nuclear technology as such. First of all, I think uh, maybe I should tell you that uh, when you say nuclear technology, it has application in nuclear power but it has also several applications in other areas other than power. This, may, this comes as a surprise to many, but uh, uh, let me tell you that uh, nuclear technology or nuclear science and engineering is used even in, uh, say, healthcare. In healthcare, it's used for diagnosis, for therapy, and sterilization. When I say diagnosis, it is used, uh, radio pharmaceuticals are injected inside the human body, they emit radiation. When they emit radiation, those uh, on special devices, on it could be X-rays, it could be special uh, LCD screen, images come. So imaging inside the body is done using this period, and the doctors are able to read them and find out how a given organ is not functioning well. So it is diagnosis. Therapy, you know, the cobalt-60 radiation gives you radiation which are used for cancer treatment to kill cancerous cells. Sterilization, using gamma rays, you can sterilize all the medical equipment. And we have several plants of that kind in our country. Then nuclear power is also used in industry. You see, uh, you are familiar with the use of X-rays to do imaging of uh, inner, inside organs. In a similar way, gamma rays 
which have more energy than X-rays, are used for scanning of petrochemical towers. Petrochemical towers have so many internals. So you have a gamma ray source on one side and some X-ray film on the other side. So you are able to see inside without opening a petrochemical tower or any chemical tower in a chemical industry, see whether any internals are displaced or at the same place. If they are displaced, you know something is wrong, we have to rectify it. In oil industry, for if they are used. In paper industry, for measurement of thickness of paper, uh, again, the nuclear uh, is used. It is used in agriculture. Agriculture uses one, you irradiate uh, seeds uh, of various, so it could be wheat or rice or oil seeds or pulses. Certain mutation will happen and you plant them. You find certain mutations are desirable because of which plant yield has increased. So like this, using these techniques of mutation by radiation, VRC has developed some 44 different varieties of oil seeds and pulses, which is uh, giving better yield. They are uh, resistant to various diseases. Then it has used in research. So it's uh, used healthcare, agriculture, industry, and research, and also producing power. So nuclear power has uh, so many uses. And this non power application of nuclear energy are so numerous and so spread out that wherever surveys have been done in certain countries, so far we have not done any survey in India, their contribution to GDP, their contribution to manpower employment is as much as that of the nuclear power. This comes as a surprise to many, but this is something which you should make note of, that nuclear power has widespread applications. And of course, on the front of uh, outlook of nuclear energy sector in India, I should say we have a very, very uh, bright uh, outlook uh, for nuclear power in India. Here, let us see, uh, let us understand it like this. Human Development Index is a, a parameter uh, which is used to see the well-being of uh, citizens of a country. It's a composite index, some total, uh, compo it combines uh, three different uh, parameters, education, health, and living standards. Education is measured in terms of how number of years of schooling if a person goes through, health in terms of longevity, and living standards in terms of per capita GDP. And, uh, HDI standard has to be above about 0.8 before you uh, say country is uh, well developed. And uh, based on, uh, if you plot HDI versus electricity consumption, what happens is as electricity consumption goes up, HDI goes up, the initial part is almost linear, then it the curve takes a turn and uh, it asymptotically it is a value of one. Mm -hmm. And uh, if one plots uh, this data of HDI versus electricity consumption, you find that to get a high HDI, say 0.9, one needs about 5,000 kilowatt hour, or can call it 5,000 units per annum per capita basis. And in our country, we are somewhere around 1,200 in that range. So if we want to have a high HDI, then we need uh, 5,000 uh, units per annum per capita. Assume population of India will stabilize at 1.6 billion, and this is a projection which uh, has been made by uh, people who are working in this area, that population will peak at 1.6 billion in 2048. 5,000 units, 1.6 billion population, and there will be always some transmission and distribution losses. Take that at 7%, which is what technically feasible is only 7% because you have a step up transformers and step down transformers and long transmission lines. So 7% losses is what is technically feasible. What we need in this country is 8,700 billion units per annum total generation. 
last fiscal that is the year ending on 31st march generation was eight only 1600 billion rupees so we have to go from 1600 to 8700 billion rupees which is desirable to use renewables mm. but ours is a very densely populated country and the total potential of solar wind and hydro together can give you at best 1000 2400 if technology advances 2500 but we need 8700 billion units where from the rest will come you either coal or nuclear coal is something which uh, the imperative of uh, deep decarbonization that tells us that one should phase out coal or use the clean technology clean coal technologies that is carbon capture and use have various pollution abatement devices installed otherwise go for nuclear mm-hmm. there is one approach which has been advocated one should use what is known as wedge several wedges one wedge of energy efficiency use as efficient devices as possible use solar use one wedge solar one wedge use uh, a nuclear one wedge do hydro wind use all these together this will give you a very diverse energy mix diverse energy mix is highly desirable i'll tell you why and nuclear has to be a part of it nuclear becomes very important why do we use uh, diversity a system become resilient to severe events only because of diversity let us say you must have heard uh, about uh, last week only there was a news uh, uh, that the coal supply in all plants in punjab is only left for one day that was a news on <laughs> last yeah. sunday why because of uh, train movement uh, was not possible farmers uh, were sitting yeah. on the uh, railway lines uh, every year we find in winter because of the fog in the entire northern part of the country rail movement is slowed down and the coal stock is a problem in uh, such cases but nuclear you can stock for a very long time the fuel is uh, so energy dense that the storing supply for a year or two years is absolutely not a challenge in a small room you will be having that fuel but to store coal for more than a week or 10 days is very difficult mm-hmm. the one and you are talking of one year so nuclear become resilient to severe events oil and we get all of a major part of our petroleum supplies from other countries there can be situation when there say a war like situation when your uh, supply chains are clogged because of warships in india we have a, a strategic reserve of petroleum but i think uh, that is maybe for a certain number of days you can't store for one year together you can build up for about 45 days 160 days of that order but war like situation can last for longer so our major oil supplies are coming from gulf countries and the strait of hormuz i think that's the name yeah. as strait of hormuz yeah to hormuz if there's a blockade there mm-hmm. supply will be choked so it's a, every source of energy has some can have some issue so to ensure that uh, your uh, supply is uh, you are able to get supply even under severe weather conditions or severe events which are man made you must have a diverse supply mm-hmm. so it should be solar it should be wind it should be hydro it should be nuclear and i will say which many people will not like it should be coal as well coal where you have installed all the pollution abatement measures and one should keep doing research on carbon capture and use and whenever that that is possible install that as well mm. definitely and let's talk about what those of our readers who were tuned to the news when they should have been tuned into cartoon channels would know about you which is the nuclear deal so that is what many would consider at least your seminal work at the at the department of atomic energy 
and what what we know about it is that it nearly caused the fall of a government and we are sure it might have been a, a real pressure cooker situation for you as well while negotiating it so firstly how did you get a role in negotiating with the with the americans what was your role and how was your experience doing that did you feel any pressure while doing the nuclear deal yeah okay uh, now yes this is a very interesting question and uh, i had a quite a big role in this entire process department of atomic energy has several research and development units bhava atomic research center that is grc is one then we have indira gandhi center for atomic research radharmana center for advanced technology and renewable energy cyclotron center uh, plus we have several dantinet institutions as well so while in grc uh, it was around 96 i was uh, assigned that i had that was a time i had finished one major assignment on thermal hydraulics for a compact reactor i was told okay you take up the job of technology transfer and also managing the funding of research in universities in areas related to atomic energy we have a board of research in nuclear sciences to which dae funds extra bureau research so i was given a major role there i became scientific secretary of board of research in nuclear sciences so while i was doing all these things then the another job came up that was becoming a technical advisor to chairman atomic energy commission so i had all these jobs simultaneously going on and after some time this position of technical advisor to chairman ac was changed to director strategic planning group so that is what the job i got in 2000 so i had uh, till then i was working on uh, thermal hydraulics issues and solving differential equation or here came the planning job so my academic instincts and academic interests they were still there i said okay let me look uh, from academic point of view work in the area of energy studies as do some forecasting as to how energy growth will be there in the country and what kind of long term planning we have to do for nuclear energy the strategic planning should not be done just like that it has to have some basis so i started looking at the growth of electrical energy in india and published a report which was released by prime minister in a function prime minister manmohan singh until that study was published everybody used to say that coal is going to last forever we have plenty of coal so the study which i published in 2004 it said the coal though plentiful is not going to last forever because our electricity requirements are going up and up so coal will be over one day and it also became clear that there will be a shortage of uranium Hmm. our nuclear program cannot be expanded until uranium is available so new prompt approach was launched by the government at that time one to intensify exploration to locate more uranium in the country second to have international dialogue so that we can import uranium now situation at that time was such that there is a informal arrangement existing which is called nuclear suppliers group uh, as according to that a country which has only five countries are entitled to have nuclear weapons they are usa france china united kingdom and russia no other country but in 1974 india went in for a peaceful nuclear explosion and in 98 uh, we had uh, demonstrated nuclear weapons and uh, prime minister varpay declared in parliament that we have we are a nuclear weapon country this was not uh, acceptable to others so 
in 19 immediately after 1974 a few countries got together and established what at that time was called as london club and later on became nuclear suppliers group and they said okay the country which has nuclear weapon program other than those five countries they cannot import any nuclear technology or uranium from outside so intense diplomatic effort was launched to ensure that we are able to import uranium very clear directions were given by the government as to how we have to achieve it it started in a very very interesting manner i was attending a meeting of united nation framework convention of climate change in milan and there it was a last day and suddenly i got a phone call from my wife that she was a secretary that is dr kakotkar who was the secretary at atomic energy and chairman at atomic energy he is trying looking for you you call him immediately so immediately i came to the nearest station and from the public call called him he said told me that you when are you coming back i said i i was to come very next day he said okay you when you reach bombay straight away come to delhi so i reached bombay at 11 pm took flight next day morning 7 am to came to new delhi was told okay if the next get ready with your passport and visa after 3 days you are going to washington this and this discussion so this is how the whole thing started so i went to washington and what was issued at that time was uh, uh discuss was next steps in strategic partnership it was in the prime ministership of uh, atal bihari vajpayee and uh, from there this journey started this was a totally different subject for me again i told you the importance of interdisciplinarity this became visible to me much more when i started looking at energy forecasting because then economics comes in i hope economics is still talk to you people in the college we had a course in economics when we were studying bce uh, so now along, along with uh, other subjects i had to look at uh, nuclear law as well till that time i i was not knowing all these uh, several of these issues but once into this i started uh, Uh, looking at those issues also and there again uh, it was a coincidence that uh, one interesting assignment came to me director general of uh, international atomic energy agency constituted a group to examine what was known as multilateral approaches to nuclear fuel cycle and i was selected as a member of that expert group and it was constituted in mid 2004 In the first meeting was in August September 2004 then in October 2004 then in January 2005 and February 2005 this meeting had lawyers had diplomats and had people engineers uh, and scientists uh, like me so there the discussions which happened they exposed me to several facets of nuclear law nuclear supplies group nuclear non proliferation treaty how people look at nuclear weapons and that training that equipped me when the other dialogue came with uh, various countries this dialogue was not only with uh, usa it was with usa with france with russia simultaneously bilateral agreements were negotiated all three together in parallel we had to negotiate a safeguards agreement with the international atomic energy agency so several layers in uh, this uh, particular agreement it was a team effort involving both dai and uh, ministry of uh, external affairs the negotiating group the usa you have particularly asked it was headed by the then foreign secretary mr shyam saran joint secretary america and i were members the joint secretary america was uh, mr jay shankar who is now our foreign minister 
so it was a very interesting group uh, we learned from each other we used to debate and uh, somewhere uh, in case of usa i was a member of the group in case of france i was leading the group in case of russia we had two groups one specific uh, to parpudur kulum reactors which was led by the then cmd of nuclear power corporation of india limited one group uh, general agreement which i was chairing so like that it went on but i must say very clear direction was provided by the management by to me it was by dr anil kakotkar who was chairman atomic energy commission at that time and then from the prime minister's office in delhi nuclear national security advisor and prime minister with those clear guidelines the negotiating team could move uh, forward but it was a big uh, challenge to ensure that you negotiate in a manner that the interests of the country as was outlined to the negotiating team by internal discussion and by the leadership in the country that is uh, uh, taken care yes it uh, involved challenge not only negotiation but also travel one i i the travel was so much i sometime i was i was not going with time zone i am uh, my body is in one particular time zone and <laughs> i'm living in a different time zone but again uh, it, it was something which uh, one could uh, uh, go through it and uh, there was another parallel thing happening was uh, negotiating to join international thermonuclear experimental reactor which is now coming up in south of france again uh, those negotiations were in uh, south korea where we joined well, that project also we could join and we are moving on did you See? used to watch uh, the news at all during that time when the controversy was happening and you were you were like at the center of what the, the issue was since i was traveling uh, either to foreign countries or to between bombay and new delhi time to watch tv news was less but mm-hmm. i was always uh, watching re- reading newspapers to see that so people used to tell me that uh, we saw your photograph and uh, entering this building and uh, going to this negotiating team that i was missing i was not seeing but i my friends and uh, family members used to tell me about that but the newspapers i was keeping track and uh, even uh, my colleagues used to send me all the cuttings wherever i may be i used to uh, get the complete information uh, about it that is why uh, i there was people started news uh, reporters started joking they sort of gave me a nickname nuclear diplomat at that time <laughs> wonderful and it is absolutely very fascinating to hear about how uh, negotiations work at the diplomatic level between countries and what your role was in it because we have only heard about these things in news reports or in news archives rather hearing it from you who was right at the center stage of everything it's definitely very fascinating uh you were also involved in the setting up of homi baba national institute hpni which was set up in 2005 and you were the founding uh, director and vice chancellor as well and the institute has been doing excellent so far and it is currently even ranked 14th in the NIRF rankings of the ministry of hrd which is absolutely phenomenal given that it's only 15 years old and it has a very good legacy already because of being a good research institute so guide us through some of the challenges that you faced while setting up hpni and what was your motivation behind setting up a completely researched focused institute around the entire domain of nuclear and atomic energy and how has your experience been so far being associated with hpni and currently serving as the professor emeritus of the institution i think the biggest challenge in setting up of hpni was how much time i could devote to it during those days because i was running everywhere uh, it was in march 2003 that my then boss anil kakotkar called me and said that uh, discussed issue of homi baba setting up an institute mm-hmm. told me that this will be your full time job 
and you have to prepare a case for setting up of HBNI. A committee was set up where I was member secretary. In any committee, most of the job is always done by chairman and member secretary. Rest give their advice, but actual uh, formulation of the report has to be member secretary has to do that. Well, I did that and submitted the application to UGC in January 2004. Mm-hmm. Final approval came and HBNI was set up in 2005. It has a unique structure, unique structure in the sense that it has uh, several constituent institutions. ERC is one, IGCAR, RRCAT, all the R&D centers of the, the department. What was happening prior to setting up of HBNI was anyone who wants to work for a PhD uh, while uh, being an employee of BARC or IGCAR or other, any of other research centers had to register for a university outside. Since as per the legal framework in our country, BRC cannot give a degree. Uh, so it used to be uh, have some uh, challenges in doing all this. So thinking was why not uh, set up a university within the department where one can overcome uh, these uh, challenges. Also, uh, we wanted uh, that in training school program we should be able to, once we are people students are studying all the subject they should be able to get a degree. Uh, and then it is also a fact that for a young person, the motivation to get a higher degree is that uh, pull is so much that propels him to work uh, 24 into 7 hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, since we wanted to have a complete indigenous R&D, that also requires that you motivate the uh, younger generation to, uh, in every way, possible to accept new challenges. So it was this background, we set up uh, HBNI and it was, when it was set up, there was a review and uh, after the review, it was a committee set up by University Grants Commission with uh, Professor Narlikar uh, as the chairman. They appreciated the research work being done but then came another committee set up by MHRD. They said to what kind, they were not able to appreciate the different structure because there's a person, is a scientific officer in BARC who has a PhD, who has faculty-like qualification. He's also a professor in HBNI. Similarly, a scientific officer in IGCAR is also a professor in HBNI. So dual role was there. So this concept, some people had difficulty in appreciating. So they gave a B rank to HBNI. So that became another big challenge. So, but the question is, uh, you have to show perseverance. So on the one hand, I was doing my literature survey and reading on nuclear law and NPT and safeguards agreement and export control laws. And at the same time, I was trying to study university education linkage between research and innovation, academic research and post-academy research and so on. But after studying all these things, uh, the members of that committee which had ranked it, they were very reasonable persons. Once I argued the case based on complete uh, survey of what is going on elsewhere in the world also, we were able to get A rank back. Uh, then came uh, ranking by NAC, National Assessment and Reddition Council. They also NAC, uh, rank all the institutions. They also have, you know, that was in 2015. They gave us A ranking. After that, I think 2017, this NIRF yeah. framework was announced. They started ranking and the latest is uh, an HBNI is ranked 14 in RTL list. And there is another interesting thing which uh, has not come much in the newspaper. Uh, there is a group of journals published by Nature and they have, by looking at 82 top ranking journals, they have given rankings worldwide and also countrywide. 
as per nature ranking based on publications in those 82 select journals uh, hbhni is number 1 in india so this is not something which uh, Uh, is so well known because this is not my doing this is because all these r and d centers etc they have been doing so good work that uh, they, i only was uh, instrumental in creating that framework of setting up of hbni so now we have uh, mtech program we have phd program and i think the last year our phd output was 260 phds wow that because it's a large framework not only we have this training school program when i mean when i studied we did get a degree now it's an mtech program we also have many other programs like diploma in radiation protection diploma in medical radiological technology diploma in fusion imaging technology let me explain what is this fusion imaging or when you go to a, when a patient goes to cancer hospital so so many imaging techniques are available these days that imaging is done using gamma rays x rays those technicians need to be trained mm-hmm. in medical radiisotopes are being used extensively in uh, nuclear uh, uh, medicine centers all over the country those technicians needs to be trained that is dmr then you need radiation safety officers in many places they get diploma in radiation protection and tata cancer hospital which is the oldest cancer hospital in the country that's a part of department of atomic energy so that's a part of mummy baba national institute they run program md in oncology and in brc we have so many analytical instruments from this year now we are starting a program for msc in analytical instruments so mm. this is all going on now one wonderful aspect about hbni is that and the person works in an environment which exists in brc or igcar or arcat where we have mega research facilities they are kind of industrial facilities you see how those facilities are being made how they are operated the students develop respect for industrial which is very very important uh, for a young student before he takes up a job there many students after phd take up jobs in uh, industry so i think th- this is something which will be very useful for engineering students there's a report which came in 2017 from us uh, national academic press uh, they have they, they did a survey they found that 25% engineers after phd end up in academia remaining 75% go to other places industry government NGOs consulting over the same thing is going to happen in India as the uh, numbers increase. So respect for industrial work is very important, and that is the hidden curriculum. It's really nice to know that such such high impact research has been happening in India. That doing HBNI, we've gone really really over time, and you've been very very generous with your time. but i do have one very very silly question to ask you and you can put it down to my age but it's it's really been a, a dream of mine to ask this to somebody how does it feel to have a padmashri how does it feel to to be recognized by a government well i i think uh, this feeling was uh, quite overwhelming i received uh, Lifetime Achievement Award from the Department of Atomic Energy, which was given by Prime Minister. I became fellow of National Academy, Indian National Academy of Engineering. But the public doesn't come to know of this. But Padmashri is something which uh, public becomes aware, so you become known at least in your neighborhood. So that feeling overwhelms you, and also gives you a a sense of. Uh, responsibility that you have to be worthy of it uh, in your day to day life the way you conduct yourself so it, it's also a responsibility this is how i look at it that your behavior should be worthy of what the government has recognized you for mm-hmm. understood and just one last question before we drop off 
what would be your message to the current students of DTU who are studying either in core mechanical branches or in computer science or other branches? What would be your suggestion to them as someone who has graduated 50 years ago and has a lot of industry and academy experience as well? Uh, what would be what would you say are the things that one should be focusing on uh, considering the uh, the present situation that they're in in order to explore a career in R&D or pursue further in academia? What would be your final words of advice? Well, one very important uh, aspect which one has to remember, whether in academia or industry, teamwork is very important. You should learn to work in teams respect the expertise of others and move on. The knowledge base which you acquire while in college, that of course has to be continuously updated because knowledge is expanding very fast. Update your knowledge, respect your colleagues, work as a team, then only you can move forward. There was a time, if you go to the say 200, 300 years ago, Galileo could uh, look in a telescope and uh, make observations. Einstein could uh, work individually. Max Planck could uh, work individual basis. But now if you see, it is large teams which have to work together. So there was a time, small science, then came big science, number of people working together. Now we have a team where several countries come together and have mega science projects. Same is in the area of industry, that we have to create multidisciplinary teams. Teamwork is very important. So be friendly towards people around you. Mm. Develop friendships of people of different disciplines. Great. Thank you so much, sir. It was an absolute honor to have you here with us today. And I absolutely hope that you also had a good time speaking with us and interacting with the current students. And once again, thank you for taking your time out to grace us with your presence. Thank you so much. Thank you. Behind the scenes stories are always fascinating and we've got many, many more to come. I am Vishesh Kashyap and with me is Shivam Jha, brought to you by the DTU Times team. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn to stay updated and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening.